Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. morning again. Um, thanks, y'all. Uh, there's a lot of things kind of going on um, with our worship service today, and um, we're all rolling with the punches, and I appreciate uh, all of it. And, um, and so, uh, Jane, thanks for being here. Um, Jackie, thanks for leading us. Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, in, um, through the first a few books of the first few chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11. We're calling it uh, The Origin Story. Um, uh, how many of y'all have seen the superhero movies? Just, I guess, any superhero movie. Show of hands. All right. How many of you have seen specifically one of the origin uh, story movies of those superheroes? A few? Oh, so same, right? Right. Um, th- th- these are important movies to help us understand, like, okay, why does Spider-Man all of a sudden able to, you know, shoot webs out of his wrists? You know, how and why does Batman actually uh, seem to care so much about bats? Uh, right. These backstories are intended to tell us why the superheroes are the way that they are. In much the same way, our study through. Uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are intended to do the same thing. They tell us why our world is the way that it is, um, why we are the way that we are. Um, And so we're going to take a a, a bit longer, um, right? We're we're going to to be looking um, and taking a little bit longer before I read our passage this morning because there are a lot of assumptions that we bring when we come to Genesis chapter 1. Um, there's different uh, assumptions that we have about the way that we're supposed to read it, and those come to us from inside and outside the church. And if y'all will bear with me one moment, I forgot I'm supposed to also record on my phone because some of our recording hasn't been working super well. So let me pull that up. Um, and there we go. Um, so let's talk first about biases or assumptions that come to us from outside of the church. Um, one of the main biases and assumptions that we have from kind of outside the community of faith is when we come to the Bible's origin, um, that we are somehow supposed to check our brain at the door. Right? That there's this inherent disagreement between science and faith. Right? The universe is... Uh, you know, it, it came about by naturalistic means, and we sort of intrinsically know that. And so anything else is nothing but a fantasy, right? That's sort of the way in which that type of logic comes to us, right? And so then in an equal and opposite reaction that comes from Christians, Christians also begin to think, well, science is trying to undermine the community of faith, and therefore I'm not going to trust aspects of science, Christians become fearful of it, and therefore non-Christians begin to see that, and they see faith and science as being incompatible with one another, almost like oil and water trying to make it together. But historically, this divide has not always been the case. Right? Historically, the community of faith has embraced science and faith together. Right? Essentially, because God has created a world that is in order, There are a lot of things that we're able to know about it through 
um, observational uh, discovery and through, uh, through testing. Christians have called this general revelation. Right, that God has told us generally about himself and the characteristics that he has that have created the world. Right? The beauty of a snow-capped mountain tells us about his beauty. The intricacy of an eyeball tells us about his care. The glory of a nebula or the Milky Way, if you've ever had the opportunity to see that getting outside of a city like Houston, um, right? these tell us about his grandeur. These things tell us about who God is and about his character, right? Science is exciting for us as Christians because it tells us about who God is and it tells us about who we are in the universe, right? One of the quotes in our bulletin comes um, from Louis Pasteur. It suggests this very same thing when he says, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the creator, right? He then goes on to suggest that his time in the laboratory is actually a time of worship and prayer because of how much he sees God's grandeur and beauty in it. So whether you are a Christian or whether you come here today a skeptic, unsure of what you think about Christianity, um, you do not have to check your brain at the door. In fact, our creative God wants you to learn about him through observing and studying his world. The God of the universe shows us about himself in that way. But then he goes further. He specifically tells us as well about who he is. He tells us about himself, who we are, his world, and how it all works together in relationship. And he does so in his word through the scriptures. So we study and we listen to him. So those are the biases that come from outside the church. What about the biases that come from within Right? Um, though you know the outside sort of says, check your brain at the door with those inside the church, oftentimes it has been this rising tide that says we're no longer allowed to agree to disagree about how Genesis 1 should be interpreted. Through much of the church's history, there has been this agreement to disagree about it. And in fact, our denomination, and I'm really glad about this because it allows us to keep so much unity and charity toward one another allows for us to have a disagreement about how we read Genesis 1. But the broader church has become less and less okay for that. Right? That Christians somehow, like if, you, uh, if you read Genesis 1 in a less literal way, you are somehow not a true and real Christian. Or vice versa, that somehow if you read it incredibly literal, that you are a backwards uh, you know, uh, a, a backwards, uh, corrupt, I don't know why I said that word, but uh, um, it, it, uh, that you do not think um, appropriately, essentially. I don't know. We'll, we'll stop there. All right. Um, there's disagreement. Um, and some of you here tonight, today might be thinking, I actually had no idea there was more than one way to read Genesis 1. And you're like, what disagreement are you even talking about, Taylor? Others of you are like, what is about to happen? Uh, is this the church that I should even be a part of anymore? Um, here's the disagreement. Do the six days in Genesis correspond to earthly days, as in six periods of 24 hours? Or is the language of Genesis more poetic than literal? which would allow for the definition of day uh, to possibly be something other than strict 24-hour day periods. 
Right? Some Christians believe that it is a more poetic framework that is answering different questions, while others believe that it is set 24-hour periods. And here's the thing. As Christians, we are supposed to read God's Word according to its genre. In parts of Scripture, we know exactly what that genre is. Right? When we are reading Proverbs, as we had this summer, or we're reading uh, the Psalms, we know that we are reading Hebrew poetry, and we read it accordingly. Right? If we read the book of Acts, we understand that it is historical narrative, and we read it accordingly. But what do we do with more challenging parts of the Bible? What do we do when we're reading the book of Revelation? What is apocalyptic, and how are we supposed to read it? Or how are we supposed to read these challenging chapters here at the beginning of Genesis 1? It is history, but is it also stylized? How do we begin to read it? And it's because it is less clear what genre it is exactly. That is why we are to have charity toward one another about disagreements of how to read it. Right? Um, I say that so that we would have charity with one another, but also so that you would have some charity toward me. Uh, when I tell you that my view is that we are reading, what we're reading in Genesis 1 is more of a poetic framework that's intended to tell us about our function in this world. And I'm happy to talk more about how I arrived at that. We do kind of once a month question and discussion times. We're going to pick that, that, that up next week. Uh, so happy to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I can tell you now that doesn't mean that I see none of this as being historical. I absolutely do. Rather, I believe, along with a lot of other Christians, that what we are reading here in Genesis chapter 1 is a stylized way of answering eternal questions. Who is God? Why did he create the world? And what is our purpose and function in the world as his creatures? So with all of that said, I'm going to read for us our passage. I'm going to do it a little bit fast. And so I guess if you listen to the sermon ever again, just put it on like 0.8 speed and it'll sound normal. Or 0.11, I don't know, whichever one. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. If you grabbed a pew Bible, it's page 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is, either, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we... Thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, as we meditate on it, um, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I I may have used this illustration before, told you all this story, but I used to be, uh, when I was in college, a summer uh, camp counselor at a summer camp called Alpine, which is in northern Alabama. And uh, and so we, uh, for one of the terms, I was... uh, a counselor for the fourth graders, they were called trappers, and we got to take them on an overnight trip to uh, these caves in southern Tennessee called Cumberland Caverns. Um, and Cumberland Caverns is this vast, amazing set of caves, and we got to spend the night in the caves, uh, which is um, unbelievably dark. Uh, but as we were going to bed one night, uh, they were going to do a light show for us and uh, and have sort of a narrative story that goes along with it. And so they turn all the lights off. It's super dark. And all of a sudden, the narrator begins in this booming voice, right, in the beginning, God, right? And so, okay, we're about to get a narrative st- storytelling of Genesis chapter 1. And all of a sudden, it, uh, somewhere down the line, God's voice comes in. Well, okay, well, that's somewhat normal. But then... He says, God, that is, I'm lonely. I will create the world or sort of something along those lines. Now, I was in college and a bunch of the other counselors were in college, but we'd studied enough of the Bible to like turn toward the kids and be like, don't listen to it. It's wrong, right? Because as even Jackie reminded us, God does not create out of loneliness. God does not create out of need. God is not lonely. The beginning of our passage, the very first verse, is a subheading, right? One that tells us what is coming. It states that before all things were ever created, God was. That is the triune God, right? He is and always was, meaning he is pre-existent. He was there at the beginning, and he is the one that creates all things. And Though it doesn't say it in verse 1, the rest of Scripture affirms that God's reasons for creating are the same reasons that He enters into a relationship with His creation. It's not loneliness. 
It's love. Love is his reason. It is out of the fullness of who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God united together in three persons, full and loving, that desires to bestow that fullness and that love upon his creation. It is that motivation that, that, that brings about creation, that prompts his creation of the world. And so as we look at these next 24 verses, I want to focus on two main things. Um, God's transcendence over creation and then God's imminence or God's nearness with creation. So first, God's transcendence over creation. In verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So after our introductory statement from verse 1, Scripture doesn't tell us, right, like, and then there was a big bang, uh, right? It doesn't tell us that God created all things from nothing, although it is assumed when it says that, you know, in the beginning, God, right, that he was the thing that was in the beginning, and therefore all things get their origin from him. But verse 2 picks up with this strange statement that somehow there are waters And the earth is there, but it's formless and void. What do these things mean? These things and these images are tricky and they don't sound right to us. Why is there water at the very beginning? Has space been created yet? Uh, What is this even talking about? Well, throughout the Bible, uh, water is never just a neutral thing. Uh, Water is either a really positive thing that brings life, right? As we drink it, it sustains us in life. Or uh, as water represents within baptism uh, and signifies our being brought into new life, it can be a positive thing, but it also can be a negative thing where it's destructive. It's meant to represent chaos and chaotic forces. Um, It brings fear and it brings trembling. Think of the Red Sea and God's judgment upon Egypt. And for those of us maybe who were here in Houston during the time of Hurricane Harvey, we know exactly what that feels like, that chaos, that disorder, right? As the rains kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and there was nothing we could do to stop it, right? And we saw the waters rise and rise and rise. Disorder, chaos. It felt more and more like the world was going to wash away. So here... The waters represent that disordered state. This is a world in which nothing is in its proper place. It's chaos, it's a mess, but God was there. So though we may fear disorder, though we may fear chaos, God is in control of all of that. He's about to take that mess, that disorder, and organize it and make beauty out of it. After all, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of it, right? So the water is there, and the creation is disordered. But what does it mean that it's formless and void? To most of us, when we hear the word void, we think, um, you know, like airless vacuum or uh, black hole or something more along those lines, a vast amount of nothingness. But that's not what's being communicated here. Rather, the void that's being talked about is more like a desert. It's this space that has nothing living in it, nothing worth noting, 
And this chaotic water is not just void, it is formless. In essence, the proper space and place has not been created. Right? There's no place, and within that no place, there's no life. There's no order. There's no life. There's no flourishing. And it's into that lack of space and that lack of life within that space, right? that formlessness and void, that God is going to reveal who he is to us. Right? God creates the space. In verses, in, in days one through three, he creates light and darkness. He separates the waters, telling them where to be. He creates land. Right? Verses one through three are concerned with answering that question. It's formless. They don't have the space. And the creation listens to him. It obeys him. The space is being created, carved out, and given its purpose. So on each of the first three days, God is concerned with creating this place. And the next three days, he fills the space, the void. It's on days four through six that those spaces come to life, filled with life that inhabits them. Day four, God creates the sun and the moon. And then day five, the swimming things and the flying animals for the waters that are separated from the waters. And finally, the animals that walk and the creepy things on the ground, and ultimately the culmination of all of creation, human beings, which we're going to talk more about next week. The mess is taking shape. It's being organized. It's being told where it's supposed to go, how to sprout to life, and how to live in relationship to the rest of creation. It's not a homogenous plate where a buffet of food gets all mixed together, right? It has, it's your cafeteria cart that tells you your meat goes here and your vegetable goes here. Everything has a place, and it is ordered, and it is beautiful, right? No jello with your potatoes, The point here is not for us to know in exactly what order God created all things, nor is the point for us to know uh, how long it took. Those questions have answers, but those answers are not given to us here. Um, Rather, the language used here describes kind of a thematic order that's meant to answer a different question, one that would have concerned the original audience a little bit more. The origin stories of other religions... Um, right, the audience would have heard a lot about those other, uh, other origin stories where the gods created um, sort of in this epic battle between good and between evil. Or the audience would have believed that certain elements of this world are disordered and chaotic and that the whim of capricious gods, they could be struck down, right? Whether they did and offended the good god or the evil god. So the question that Genesis 1 is seeking to answer is actually more important in helping us to figure out who God is than it is helping us to figure out where the dinosaurs fit in in Genesis 1, right? It's more important than helping us to figure out where and how, like, was a star created along with its light waves so that, like, when we see it a billion light years away, is it actually, you know, how, how does all that work together? Genesis 1 isn't answering those questions, The questions it's answering are more important. What is God like? Is he just another impulsive, angry deity? Or is he different? And the answer to that question is crystal clear. There are no warring deities here. There is love and there is unity amongst the Trinity. There is no arbitrary punishment or uncontrolled chaos. 
there is order and there is beauty. And it's important to notice how that God's power over all creation is demonstrated here. Right? Does he fight and struggle to separate the waters, to bring forth land and vegetation? No, it, it merely says, let, he says merely, let there be light, and there was light. He merely says, let the waters, you know, kind of under the heavens be gathered to this one particular place, and they obey it, and the waters stay there. So what is this telling us? Right, that the God of Israel is the one true God, and everything answers to him. Right, though the original audience might have heard of the different gods of maybe the Egyptians or the Hittites, right? And though the Egyptians would have believed in, in the God of the sun, what this is saying is that the sun obeys the commands of the one true God. And not only that, right? What a relief it would have been for the original audience to hear that you don't have to constantly worry about offending the sun God and uh, and, and the God of the waters and the God of the harvest, because if you offend any one of those, you might you know, bring about a famine upon your land. No, there is one God, sufficient and powerful over all of the created order. And though there aren't many polytheists among us these days, we all fear this disordered and seemingly capricious nature of the world. Right? Though you may believe that at times... Right, there are forces at work in this world. This passage is telling us those forces answer to the Lord. Right? Even like Newtonian forces. Right? He made all things and he rules over all of them. And, and, and by his word, they came into creation and by his word, they are sustained by him. Um, I'm no scientist. And maybe you could tell that by the all of me. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but this week in our staff meeting, we looked together at this passage and sort of had a Bible study about it. And I was reminded um, of the second law of thermodynamics while we were talking about this. Right? Um, and for those of y'all who didn't remember, like I didn't, uh, the law says that the state uh, of entropy increases over time. Right? So kind of in a closed system, all things move from order to disorder. We know that instinctively. Just, you know, live with children. Um, right? Where things have their place and their order, but over time they spread out and they go their own place, their own way. So in a closed system like the universe, um, the second law of thermodynamics states that the universe will disorder itself. It will point to where everything actually begins to look exactly the same. Um, a disordered chaos, almost exactly like what is being described here in Genesis 2. In essence, everything everywhere, according to this law, will look like and operate like the uniform disordered waters of the deep described in Genesis 2. Um, okay, so like me, if you're not a scientist, like what does that have to do with me? Um, I, 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 what I loved about that example is that it is a super hard-pointed example of what we all believe, right? That there is a force at work that is just going to take us in a particular direction and there's nothing any of us can do about it, right? Whether we believe ultimately in the God of Newtonian physics, um, whether we believe in something called luck or fortune or astrology, 
or whether like Nacho Libre's friend, you, uh, you believe in science, you know, and I believe in God or however he says it, right? Um, what this is telling us is that though we form apocalyptic formulations of what the future is going to look like, in any and all of those circumstances, those things have no real power. They are there if they are there at all because God has determined it and he is the one who's in control of all of it. Whether you're fortune telling on a grandiose stage where it's something like the sun is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it you know, envelops the earth, right? sort of in, in that type of grandiose stage or whether you're fortune telling in a very minor way where we believe, you know what, I can kind of fortune tell about my marriage and it just doesn't feel good. It's feeling like it's about to fall apart. In any and all of those things that God creates and he upholds. But not only that, this passage teaches us that he is near as well. He is near to his creation. And I promise this point will be, be much faster. <clears throat> Though it's repeated over and over again throughout the passage, it's easy to skip over. But we're told again and again that God speaks his benediction over creation, his good word. He speaks a blessing over it when he says, you are good. And this can be hard for us to recognize because we live in a broken and a fallen world. Where the elements of this world are not as the way they're supposed to be. And so we're like, yeah, the snow-capped mountains are beautiful and all, but... Like, what happens when you've, uh, you know, been in an avalanche? All of a sudden, they're not as beautiful. Or birds testify to the glory of God, but wait until you get swine flu, or not swine flu, bird flu, right? Um, But before anything went wrong with God's creation, it was created good, right? It was created good times seven. And God loves it, and he made it out of his love. And though it's broken, and we'll focus more on how it became broken in the, in the coming weeks. Even his care over creation isn't distant and unconcerned. It's close, it's connected, it's intimate. Earlier in the service we read, uh, Jackie read for us um, from the passage in Mark chapter 4. Where Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And a big storm comes upon them. Um, and they're fearful because these chaotic waters uh, are, are all around them. They have absolutely no control, just like we didn't in Hurricane Harvey. Right? They're unable to fight against the storm. Yet somehow Jesus is asleep. And in their despair, and though they know that these sorts of storms, what these sorts of storms do, they bring about death and destruction. They cry out to Jesus and they say, don't you care? Jesus wakes up and he gets up. And with his word, he commands the storm. He rebukes it. He says, peace, be still. And the wind and the rain, the storm obeys his voice. And it says that his disciples were afraid. Why? They're afraid because they realize what's happening, right? They're fishermen. They know that, like, you don't just tell a storm what to do and the storm listens. Unless... The same voice that said separate the waters from the waters is the same one that's telling the wind and the waves to be still. Unless the very same word that was there at the beginning of all of creation is the one that has rebuked this very storm. 
Right? God so loved the world that he created right, in his transcendence, but in his imminence, he so loved that he became a part of the created order. Right? Begotten of the Father, not made, yet fully man and a part of the creation. And in Jesus, we see that transcendence and that imminence, that nearness meet together. We see the one who's capable of telling the wind and the waves to stop. Right? We see the one who is capable of telling the world that keeps getting hotter and hotter like it has this summer. He's the one who's able to tell it to stop. Right? We see the one when, our, when cancer is growing in our bodies more and more. He is the one who is able to make it stop. And we don't know why at times he doesn't tell it to stop, but we know that he is with us and he is near us in his creation all the same until he puts it to rights in the future. And he promises that he will. We see God who is powerful over all things. And we see that same God near us, with us in his creation. He takes what's broken and he ultimately makes it right. So if you leave here with no other application, hear this, right? Genesis 1 is telling us that the same power that was at work in creating it is the same power that is at work sustaining it, right? And not only that, the same power that said Milky Way, be there, right? That cares immensely about the billions and billions of stars is the same one that looks at you and says, I love you out of the billions and billions of people in this world. He is powerful over all of it, and he cares deeply about it. God made all things, and he ordered all of it to testify to who he is and what he is doing in the world. And he's proven to us exactly what he's like in Jesus Christ. Would you all pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you for um, your grace and mercy to us. Lord, that you are over all things and that you care deeply about your creation. Father, may we respond to you in the love that you have shown us and bestowed upon us. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.